hello. Welcome to another episode of the Making Sense of Islam podcast. A few housekeeping points before we begin. Every episode is accompanied by episode notes that highlight everything I've referenced. So people, verses, hadith, etc. They're all in the episode notes, which you can find at makingsenseofislam.com. Most of the episodes are short form, so the notes are few. But when you listen to longer form episodes, the notes are meant to be a resource and an aid. Number two. I would really appreciate it if you could rate the podcast on whatever platform you use and leave a comment, hopefully positive. And number three, every Friday I send out a short email called Coexist Ruminations that shares what I'm working on and reading in my four focus areas. If you'd like to receive these, please sign up by going to makingsenseofislam.com forward slash Friday. That's it for now. Enjoy the show. If you have ever spent time studying any of the Islamic sciences, one of the patterns that becomes clear is the attention scholars in the past gave to documenting principles, axioms, rules, aphorisms, etc. In almost every discipline, you will find these catalogued, all with the aim of making the study of that particular discipline easy. So, rather than always having to start with a minutia and then making sense of it, students typically learn these principles which provide important frameworks to make sense of it all. Now, while these principles are usually for students and experts of these fields, I believe that many Muslims seeking to make sense of Islam require their own set of first principles through which they can approach Islam as a religion and discipline of study and also draw conclusions that are both at one with the fundamentals of the faith and also compatible with our current condition. In this series, and at this point, I'm not exactly sure how long it's going to be, but I will say at least 10 episodes. I want to highlight some of these first principles that help us create a mental framework through which we can make sense of Islam today. Enjoy. I hope everyone's doing well. So today's principle requires a little bit of a caveat. And the first thing I want to say in the beginning is that this might not necessarily be a traditional first principle, but in the modern period, it's a principle because of the ongoing discussion that we hear about the difference between sex and gender, roles of men and women, and also the way that that plays out in our own practice of Islam and our centers of Islam and the way we deal with, with each other, etc., so while I hope the information that I'll present is timeless, is authentic, is orthodox, etc., the way that we are talking about it, I have to admit, is something that is a function of the modern world. The other thing I want to say is that a lot of what I'm going to talk about has to do specifically with issues of is how Islam looks at women, and I am completely cognizant that I am a man discussing this issue, and maybe you know, there will be a bias and uh, it would be helpful to have a female perspective and I'm sensitive to that. Uh, I can't change that fact uh, that I'm a man discussing this, but it is one of the things that I wanted to present when I, you know, made the sketch of, of the first principles. So I hope uh, the audience will forgive me for that and I mean no offense and I am completely aware of the gender limitations and the gender bias that can come when a person like me discusses this. And I apologize in advance. The first thing I want to say, and by the way, 
uh, I guess the third caveat is I'm not, I don't want to get into when I say the word gender and identity and all of these things. I don't want, this episode is not going to discuss the things that are being discussed in the broader, in broader society today about gender, cisgender, transgender, things like that. I'm not going to discuss that. I, I don't think we're there yet, at least with the progression of this discussion. Today is simply about what Islam says about men and women, hence the title of the episode. The first thing to say is that if you were to summarize in, in quick form what Islam thinks or says or teaches about men and women, is that men and women are equal but not the same. Equal in the sense that they are equal in creation, equal in their obligations, equal in their utility, equal in their dignity, etc., etc. But of course not the same. There are obvious differences, uh, biological, physiological, and in vis-a-vis the law, that is Islamic law, the Sharia, there are some differences vis-a-vis what happens in certain circumstances that we'll get into. But there is this fundamental equalness of men and women. So when the Qur'an speaks about creation, God says, we have created you from a single soul, and from that single soul, we have derived men and women that proliferate the human race. So, And this verse is repeated throughout the Qur'an. It's not like it comes once. It's a repeated theme. In other words that there is this equality in creation, that there is no idea that a man in his creation is better than a woman or that a woman in her creation is better than a man. And again, I'm not talking about patriarchal bias that exists in Islamic cultures, which is a real problem. Uh, I'm, we're just talking about the text of Islam and and, and remember this, this little series in the podcast is about first principles. So, yeah, that stuff exists, that bias stuff exists, in, 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 and sometimes it can be really, really nasty and destructive. Hopefully, when we lay out the first principles, that will give us some tools that we can go back to our communities and hope work through some of those problems. Anyway, so this equality in creation, we are equal in, in creation. And the reason uh, the Qur'an is so explicit about that is that we know from our own history that the pre-Islamic Arabs, the Jahili Arabs, the age of ignorance as we call them, there was this lack of equality, that there was this really bad habit, uh, horrendous, heinous habit, that people that were uh, given a daughter, uh, when a daughter was born, they would be so overwhelmed with grief that they would bury that daughter alive. And that's what the Qur'an refers to, that on the Day of Judgment, that that child will ask, She will ask, by what right was I killed? A very harrowing verse that Allah reminds us of how how crazy of a practice that was. So because this is the theater uh, and the context in which the, the revelation of the Qur'an is revealed, these verses are very explicit that there is this equality. There's also in the background of these verses this idea of original sin, that the original sin, which I realize in its phrasing is a maybe Judeo-Christian concept much more than it is an Islamic concept, but nonetheless the the eating of the fruit from paradise and the expulsion of the paradise from Adam and Eve, in the Quranic narrative, it's both of them that did that. It's not that Eve colluded with Satan and, uh, you know, tricked Adam and then therefore the stain is on the woman. 
there is no original sin, and there is, from the point of view of, of how, as it's understood in the Judeo-Christian context. I mean, that episode happened, the Qur'an talks about it, but then Adam and Eve were forgiven. Adam and Eve both ate. Adam and Eve both, uh, you know, asked for forgiveness, and then they were forgiven. And then there's, this relates to another concept that we have, that no soul bears the sins of another. لا تزير وزيرة وزيرة أخرى. So even if, you know, we were to say, okay, that was a sin or a fault of Adam and Eve, it doesn't transfer to their progeny. So that's also a big, um, that's behind these verses as well. There's that address as well to, to say, okay, in other religious traditions, there might be this concept that Eve bears some sort of sin and responsibility, and therefore the female carries that in the Quran is being very explicit like no we, we this is not something that we believe in at all whatsoever men and women are both honored as human beings they're both honored in their creation they're equal in their creation uh, they both can earn good deeds they both can earn bad deeds they both can have goodness in this life they both can have the highest levels of paradise in the in the uh, in the hereafter etc so the, if we can bifurcate the obligations and if we can say high, and I'm making these terms up on the spot, high obligations and low obligations vis-a-vis -vis the law, because the concept of equality, if you look at least in the Oxford English Dictionary, it talks a lot about equality vis-a-vis -vis the law. And part of the term's history is how the law looks at different people and, and men and women, etc. So if we look at our religious legal system in the sharia if we look at high obligations the obligations are also the same they're also equal so both men and women have to pray both men and women have to fast both men and women have to be honest both men and women have to do righteous works they have to perform the hajj once in their life they both have to pay their zakat uh, they both have to be equitable etc 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 so those high obligations are also the same it's not that men have to do this and they don't and women have to do another set of things and therefore all of the verses that talk about oh you who believe uh, you know oh uh, mankind etc they're equally addressed to men and women so all of the commentators of the quran will attest to that that these are verses that are equally addressed to men and women so in the religious uh, spiritual context they're the same uh, equal uh, things that they have to do and therefore, the reward is the same. So there's no, there is there is no idea that somehow a man's righteous deed is worth more than a woman's righteous deed, or a man's sin is less than a woman's sin. And when I say this, people might be like, "Okay, yeah, we get that. Why are you even talking about it?" But think about where the man, how that manifests in our cultural attitudes. And if you think about that, then you'll see why it's important to reiterate that. Because sometimes we have, not sometimes, almost all the time we have double standards. Where uh, families will allow their boys to do, you know, to get away with almost murder, but will not let their daughters do anything. A very common trope in, in Muslim-majority families uh, and cultures. And that's a manifestation of a misunderstanding of what we're talking about. That, that would necessitate, therefore, that there's no equality in their obligations. No, morally, they, they have the same set of obligations. And because they have the same set of obligations in the hereafter, that 
equality also manifests, that they can equally be felicitous in paradise, as I said, or unfortunately they could equally be, uh, you know, and we ask for Allah's protection, damned in, in the hellfire, etc. So again, it's it's the same. You know, you can do good or you can mess up. It doesn't matter if you're a man or if you're a woman, the same thing can happen. And then thirdly, if we think of this bifurcation and we're still on the high obligation side, the obligations are the same and equal, therefore, in our interactions with one another. So you have to be honest and you can't lie and you can't steal and you can't cheat and you can't hurt and all of those things vis-a-vis our social intercourse with, with you know, friends, neighbors, families, you know, society at large. They're the same, same set of rules. There's no different set that Islam teaches for men and for women. Now, if you look at the, and, I, and I, this is a really bad terminology as I'm recording this, I realize that, so I apologize. But if you look at the low obligations, maybe that's where we can start to say, okay, they're equal but not the same. And the obvious, one of the obvious areas is that women can, uh, you know, become pregnant and bear children. And, and, and therefore, there's a whole other set of things that women have to worry about and deal with that men don't have to worry about at least biologically but if there's a family and there's children of course both men and women are responsible for the child etc and that's where we we get into some of the differences so there are functional differences now what i want to do for the rest of the of the episode is i want to talk about some of those functional differences that deal specifically with women and this is why i began with that caveat that i apologize in advance that i'm I'm the one doing this there are three main issues i think that people constantly come back and and critique islam whether they're muslims or non-muslims but they critique islam on these three issues one is female circumcision the second is inheritance and the third is the possibility of women serving in political positions and I'm just picking things that are maybe people are used to hearing these critiques. I'm not saying this is the be-all and end-all. I'm not saying that these are all of the issues, but hopefully they can you know, start, to start a conversation, a wider community conversation. So the first is female circumcision, which uh, <clears throat> needs to be stated that when we say FGM, female genital, genital mutilation, is technically something different than female circumcision, even though in public discourse both term only FGM is used. I want to be very clear that I'm talking about female circumcision, and it manifests unfortunately into female genital mutilation, which is no less than a crime against humanity, and of course by consensus completely haram, and therefore banned and all of that. But where where does all of this come from, and? There is an idea in the Sharia literature that both the sexual organs are circumcised. So when the Sharia books talk about sexual intercourse, they talk about the meeting of the two circumcised organs. So there's always this idea that they are, there is circumcision for men and circumcision for women. However, when, the fuqaha, when this became a problem in the modern age, when, when it turned into mutilation, which is completely haram there's no room for that you know whatsoever i mean some of those things are if you unfortunately i was involved in analyzing some of these issues when i was living in egypt and i mean it's it's really harrowing harrowing stuff i mean really really dark stuff uh, you know it's completely wrong and morally haram on, on so many levels but when it became when it came to become a problem 
then all of these jurists are like, okay, well, this is clearly not what the books of fiqh and the hadith sources talk about. And when they investigated it, they found that there is a series of hadith, even though there are some weaknesses in the hadith, that bifurcate the circumcision for, for men as something that is necessary and that the circumcision for the woman is something that is extra. And therefore they under and they deduced from that that it is not something that's an obligation, that it's almost like a cultural at the time of the uh, advent of Islam and the rise of Islam was something that was culturally accepted and expected, but not necessarily something that's obligation. Therefore, it's not at the same level as circumcision for boys. So they said, okay, well, it's not a, a fard, it's, it's, if, to use the Sharia language, it's not an obligation to start out with, and because no one seems to know how to do it, and because it's turning into mutilation, which is by consensus haram, therefore it should be banned. Not in, in spite of the Sharia, but because of our reading of the Sharia. So that's a couple of you know points to think about when it comes to female circumcision that unfortunately has turned into FG, FGM. And what's interesting when I looked at this issue is even the fuqaha, the medieval fuqaha, the medieval jurists themselves, when they described fe female circumcision, they said it's so difficult that most doctors don't know how to do it. So it was bound you know, to get out of hand. And when it comes to, again, issues of men and women, Specifically on this issue, there's going to be that difference in which it's not an obligation for women uh, or for girls, rather, and therefore something that easily the jurors, you know, get behind the ban, the ban of it. Now, unfortunately, there are people in the name of Islam that continue to perpetrate that, and you know, hopefully, uh, this will end sooner rather than later. The second issue, in which there's a you know, controversy and therefore elicits this issue of men and women and the differences, etc., is the issue of inheritance. And a lot of this comes from that verse in the Quran in which it says, مِثْلُ حَظِّ uh, that the, the boy or, or the man receives double the share of the woman. Uh, but what people fail to understand is that when you map out all of the or, or some of the major um, scenarios of inheritance, there's only one instance in which the man inherits double the woman. There are many instances in which the man inherits the same as the woman. There are instances in which a woman inherits more than a man. And there are instances still that a woman inherits and a man doesn't inherit at all. And I think in one of the episodes I referenced uh, this book of, um, or maybe this was something else, but I, I, I co-translated a book of uh, fatwas of contemporary fatwas, and this was one of the fatwas in which, uh, and actually I translated this fatwa myself, I, 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 we mapped out all of those instances and those differences, and I'll, I will link that in the notes. It's called Responding from the Tradition, and it's published by Fons Vitae in the United States. And that fatwa will give you all of the instances that I just mapped out. Again, where a woman inherits less than a man, where a woman inherits the same as a man, where a woman inherits more than a man, and where a woman inherits and a man doesn't inherit at all. So the verse, therefore, is talking about something specific, but when you look at inheritance in general, there's a lot of differences. However, even in that case, where a woman inherits half that of a man, in that circumstance, the double portion of the man, in this case the brother inheriting more than his sister, necessitates and obligates that the brother 
covers the financial needs of his sister moving forward. So, again, when we talk about equality, obligation, responsibility, this part of the story unfortunately drops. And we're left with, uh, you know, uh, guys taking all this inheritance and then leaving their sisters in the lurch and all of that kind of stuff. And that's something that's not intended by the verse or not intended by the Sharia. Again, so something to think about, something to consider. And then lastly, the issue of women serving as, as judges and women serving in political uh, positions, p- positions of political power, uh, specifically heads of state. And again, the, the ulama that, that took care to analyze this issue, they found throughout our history that there were over 90 circumstances in which women served as judges and in positions of political power. And two of the mujtahids of Islam, uh, Imam al-Tabari and Imam uh, Ibn Abi Layla, were of the opinion that even a woman could be the khalifa which was, uh, uh, to be on a transparent, a minor position. Most of the fuqaha said that the only thing the sharia disallows for a woman is that she serves as the khalifa because part of the khalifa's position is that they lead Friday prayer and they have to leave the troops in battle and all that kind of stuff. But the modern head of state is not that supreme uh, khalifa position. It's something else. But nonetheless, even when it deals with the issue of the khilafah, there are you know dis- different different opinions. Now, culturally, historically, I mean, and culturally, it was not common that women served as judges and and women served as heads of state. But the issue that I'm trying to talk about is what does the faith, you know, in its primary sources and its first principles teach? No, there's no problem with a woman uh, serving in these positions. And not only has it happened in the past, I mean, over 90 times, notable times, even going back to the khilafah of um, Sayyidina Umar radiallahu anhu, which is technically therefore part of the sunnah of what we follow because the prophet peace be upon him said follow my sunnah and the sunnah of the righteously guided uh, caliphs so if, if, if one of the righteously guided caliphs for sunni muslims did something that's also quote unquote part of the sunnah um, it's certainly valid today and, and therefore there should be no barrier to women serving in these positions of authority, legal authority, political authority etc. Uh, and that unfortunately a lot of times it's cultural biases and and issues that get in the way of that. These are just some thoughts um, uh, about how differences of, of men and women in Islam have, have led to controversy and maybe if we think about the first part of the episode about the uh, how there's this equality in creation and equality vers- vis-a-vis the law and things like that, maybe we can start to correct some of these biases that unfortunately lead really to nothing short of a double standard and there should be no double standard because from a moral point of view there are not two sets of moral standards there's just one set that we have to follow as muslims i hope this is helpful and maybe some of the other things that are uh, i didn't discuss we can we can bring in an expert and maybe we can interview and discuss in the future Uh, please let me know if you'd like that uh, and i will talk to you all soon take care